0: The OnScript podcast, your home for world class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at OnScript.study, say hello on Twitter at OnScript podcast, and stop by our Facebook page at slash OnScript.
1: Welcome back, OnScript listeners. This is Matt Lynch, a co host of the podcast. I want to start out by just saying thank you to Ed Hatkey for producing OnScript. Your work is really appreciated by all of us. And I know I'm speaking on behalf of our team at OnScript, but also our listeners as well. And also thanks to Rebecca Terhune and Tommy Molman for marketing and media help and to James Steinbach for his assistance with the website. We really appreciate all of you. I also want to thank those of you who've given us a ratings on iTunes and other platforms like Friendster, MySpace and online bulletin boards Um, I really appreciate that, and if you haven't done so thus far, please do fire up that old MySpace account and uh, go on in and give us a rating. So I think that goes really far. Uh, So does an iTunes rating, incidentally. I want to read one of our iTunes reviews by someone named Dashing Cow. This is actually from last year, uh, but I just noticed it. And, um, And this is what Dashing Cow writes one of my favorites. This podcast is absolutely great, inspires me to read a lot more scholarly books on scripture. Their convos are very thought-provoking, and in my opinion, they are hilarious. Uh, so thanks so much, Dashing Cow, and, Cal, and um, especially uh, for, get, for them going on to give us a one-star review. Um, Dashing Cow didn't need to give us any stars, so we're really grateful for that one that we got. Um, in this episode, we have none other than Matt Bates and Aaron Heim interviewing Michael Bird about the textbook he co-authored with N. T. Wright. Uh, but of course, Tom—I can call him Tom. Right? He's a—he's a busy man, and we couldn't pin him down this time. Perhaps in the future. All right, enjoy the episode.
2: Hello, OnScript listeners. This is OnScript co-host Matthew Bates, and today we're piling on New Testament scholars. I've got Aaron Heim with me today. How are you, Aaron? I'm great, Matt. Glad to be here. (laughs) Aaron is wearing a Chewbacca hoodie. Um, I'm not sure what that means, um, but I can see her. You can't. Um, should we have invited Chris Tilling to join us too, uh, since we're we're uh, you know piling on the New Testament scholars?
0: Well, I mean, only if Chris has a Chewbacca hoodie, because that's how we represent here in Oxford. Wow, and I would
3: have said I would have said Chris is more like the Darth Vader of biblical uh, uh, scholars.
0: <laughs> you know that might be true. He is kind of Darth Vader. But yes, I'm I'm representing in my my Halloween costume slash pajamas today because it's it's nighttime here.
2: Well, obviously, it would have been uh, intense to throw in, you know, an obnoxious Brit like Chris uh, when we already have to deal with Mike Bird, uh, who's our guest. Uh, Mike's already piped in. We can't keep him quiet, even if we try. Uh, So uh, thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Uh, Welcome back to OnScript. Thank you for having me. Great to be back with you guys and gals again. Yeah, well, Mike's been with us before. I think it was just an episode I hosted just with Mike on his book "Jesus the Eternal Son," answering adoptionist Christology. And last time, uh, we talked about everyone's favorite topic, Mike uh, the pump the pumpkinification of Claudius uh, by Seneca the Younger. <laughs> um, do you want to? Yeah. Do you want to make any Halloween-related statements or theological mandates uh, in relation to that? Oh, ugh.
3: well, we. we, we... We don't really do Halloween that much in Australia. It's a little bit, uh but it's not a big deal. But if I had to go as one Halloween character, I probably I would probably go as um Hamilton. If I had to do, if I had to do a a Halloween party, I would go as Hamilton from the musical Hamilton.
2: I don't know what to say about that other than I'm not surprised.
3: It it shows you I have a I have a somewhat um uh Peculiar love for musical theater for a straight man.
2: Yes, you <laughs> <laughs> you sung some Hamilton for me last time, I believe. Um, so, yeah, and I'm uh, willing to nice. do it again
3: on request. <laughs> okay, or I could do Les Mis or the complete score of HMS Pinafore. <laughs> All right,
2: we're, we're we're moving right along then. Aaron, you got you got a question for Mike before he starts singing for us?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I kind of want to hear Les Mis actually, but um, let's jump in. Let's jump in. So we're talking to Mike today about his new book that he's co-written with N. T. Wright. Uh, it's called the new Testament in its world. And it's an introduction, Mike. So my question, uh, not having a chance to read the book, which we usually do for on script. Um, but we didn't have the manuscript available cause it's not actually out yet. Um, You've written an introduction, and there are a lot of introductions out there. So what makes your introduction special? What does it bring to students that's maybe missing or different from other textbooks? Well,
3: I think there's a, a number of things that we, we do a little bit differently. Uh, on, on the one hand, this, this really does, because it's co-authored with Tom Wright, it does have a very robust focus on history and historical background. Uh, now that's characteristic, maybe not unique of the volume, but you, you really do have that big history thing. The other thing to note is it is kind of a, um, a maybe not a reader or sampler, but it takes the lifetime work of uh, N.T. Wright and uh, transforms it into the genre of a New Testament introduction. So it's, it's a little bit of playing some of the greatest hits, but also it's been thoroughly reworked to make it readable for grad students or for seminary students and, and, and people in college. Another thing we do is we, we constantly ask the so what question. So, you know, like when we start any uh, chapter of a particular book, Gospel of Mark or Hebrews, we kind of start off saying, well, why is this book interesting? I mean, why should you be interested to read this? And then we also finish off with kind of what it means for us today. And that kind of thing. And along the way, we do have a few sort of cute things. There's this ongoing email correspondence between a student and a professor, which is called "Emails from the Edge." Uh, I got the I, I got the idea from that from Ger Tyson's book um, "Shadow of the Galilean." I don't know if you have ever heard of that book. That's where there's where there's an ongoing correspondence between a, a um, between two professors, and by the end at the end of it, you find out that one of them is actually uh, fictional, uh, which was a bit, of, a bit of a surprise to me at the end. Uh, and we, we do a few other, we've got a few other little things going on, like um, uh, the, we, do, we do these little sort of inset boxes about the world behind uh, Blast from the Past, where you get quotes from any, everyone from Seneca to Bonhoeffer. So there, there are a few things we do here that make it distinct, and there's also, um, it's one of the few textbooks, it's also got like two different DVD series that have been filmed to go with it, so you can use it in a kind of multi-resource way. Uh, however, you're using it, whether it's just for yourself, uh, in seminary or an adult, adult Sunday school class, or anything like that.
0: So, the DVD series is that. Um, does that also feature you and Tom on location? Is that what that DVD series is?
3: Yeah, well, there's there's two DVDs. Uh, one is kind of like a church-based. Um, uh, a church-based level like like for home Bible study groups that's one level which is kind of filmed around um, Israel Greece and Rome and there's another one which we filmed in a studio uh, which features me and Tom just basically going through uh, the New Testament as well with a few with a few kind of plugins from the other things we've shot here and there
2: you forgot about the the third CD that features you and Tom doing hip-hop Uh to uh, to try to promote Jesus as king. Yeah.
3: Well, actually, that is that is not far fetched as you might think. Seriously, I I add a little bit of freestyle rap in my Romans commentary. Check out my section on Romans six, and I do break out. And what is more, I have to point out uh, that in my uh, the second edition of my evangelical theology, I've made the Council of Nicaea to be a rap battle. Between Athanasius and Eusebius of Nicomedia. Now,
2: now, why did you <laughs> so, uh, why did you assume, Mike, that I that I thought that was a far fetched idea? Uh, I I knew that wasn't far fetched. I, I knew that was right in your wheelhouse and right in Tom's. Well, this is the, well, Tom 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 is musical in a way that I'm not.
1: I
3: mean, let, let me give you the background. Before I was a biblical scholar, before I did that, I was in the military, um, in the infantry and military intelligence. But before I did that, I wanted to write musical theater. So, uh, and I particularly wanted to write the lyrics to shows like a, a uh, like you know, Lame is or South Pacific or, or whatever. That, so that so that's kind of the um, the career I never had, being a, a lyricist for Broadway shows. And I bring a little bit of the uh, artistic flair, I hope, to biblical studies. That's why people constantly complain about my rhyming and alliteration in sentences.
2: Maybe I should have co-written that Jesus is king with Kanye. Uh, well, Maybe I should have. yeah, I think so. I, well, you've already kind of started to give us a little bit of, of the backstory in your own life. How about you connect that then to, to this book and to N.T. Wright? How did you and, and uh, Tom Wright end up deciding to team up to do this in the first place? Give us the story. Well, I was speaking to SPCK uh,
3: about 10 years ago. Oh, my goodness, 10 years ago. And they said, hey, Mike, you got any book ideas for us? I said, well, not really. I'm talking to Philip Law at this time. I'm kind of booked up for a while. Uh, But I, I tell you what, I'll give you guys an idea for free. How about you get someone to work with Tom Wright and take his lifetime work and that way, you know, distill it down to one volume, maybe a New Testament intro, because it, it takes nearly a lifetime to read Tom Wright's A Lifetime of Work. So you know, this, this, this would be useful, and I think it would connect with people. And they love the idea, and they said, hey, well, why don't you do it? And I said, well, you know, I, I've, I've met Tom a couple of times. I think, you know, I think we're on the same level, but, you know, Tom, Tom may have his own people. He may have his own peeps who want to do this. Uh, but as we, uh, I mean, they went back and they spoke to Tom, and top, oh, yeah, that Mike Bird's not, not bad. Uh, so we kind of teamed up and we got together. And then Zondervan came on board uh, at the next level. And it became, you know, bigger than Ben-Hur at that stage. We're going to do these two DVDs. It's going to be a full-on colour book. Um, we're about to start a, I, can, I can't believe I'm saying this, we're about to start a book tour uh, in about um, about three weeks, which will be uh, a fantastic. A um, lot, lot of good fun to be, to be happened there. And yeah, so it just kind of grew from there. And then, over a, basically over a 10 year period, I began um, working on the various chapters, working with Tom's material. Then I'd take stuff to Tom. He'd look at it, revise it. Um, he's written some extra stuff for this volume, uh, especially. And that's pretty much where we've got today.
0: I I have two questions out of that. And the first one, um, brings us back to the book tour. Um, so when you go on this book tour, are you going to rap like Kanye West at any point in the book tour or, um, maybe are there any instances like in your Romans commentary or in evangelical theology in this book? Did any, did any rap make it into this new Testament introduction?
3: Yeah, I've been trying. I've been trying to get a uh, a hymn published. It's more like a contemporary hill song, which is called "Jesus, You're terrific." For you, I'd swim the Pacific. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to promote that. It's just like same words, three different chords. I think it'll work. I think that I think this is going to be big. It's going to be big. And
0: and Tom can play his trombone.
3: Oh, I think he's more of a guitar man. More of a. Oh guitar. no, I
0: know he plays the trombone because we're we're going to have a brass quintet for our annual review this year. Oh my gosh, I did not know that. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, you know more about my co-author than I do. Well, he's my colleague now. Yeah, the short answer
3: is uh, no, there won't be much rap by myself on the book tour. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Zondervan has appointed a particular minder to follow me around and to crash tackle me in the case that I begin to break into any kind of rap or melodic lyrics of a hip-hop nature.
2: Well, at the SBL conference, I'll be, um, I'll be keenly listening to see if uh, there is a debut for Jesus, Jesus, You're Terrific, or uh, whatever it was, uh, better than a Pacific. Wait, wait, but I had a more um,
0: serious question, though, Matt. That was my, that was my oh, fake question. Oh, okay. My serious question is, Mike just mentioned that there was new stuff that Tom wrote in the book. Can you give us a taste of the new stuff that, had, that was written, especially for the introduction, and where we should maybe be looking for it?
3: Yeah, the opening chapter is where Tom kind of explains the importance of reading the, the New Testament as history, literature, and theology, and then there's a final section at the end as to how the New Testament connects to, to Christian life, to church life, and then there's several sections throughout the book. Uh, one funny thing uh, happened is I, I went through and wrote the Romans chapter, and I, you know, I, you know, I've done my own romance commentary. I, I, I think I know this. So I went through and did that. And then then Tom went through it and basically completely rewrote it. <laughs> Which at one level... Well, at one level, it was kind of depressing. But the depressing fact was that what he wrote was so much better than what I wrote the first time. Uh, so it, it was... You know, it's when, when your senior colleague kind of overwrite something. But when you have to admit, actually, that is a lot better. And so there's a few, few moments like that but i uh, i think it's just it's come it's just really come together well and uh, you know you you get kind of like you know some of the greatest hits but there's also some new fresh material we're trying to think of what you know each particular book means for christians today and you know, one thing I'm trying to do is you know get people just interested in the content, like why is New Testament background interesting? you know why should you care about the theological themes of uh, the Thessalonian correspondence so uh, that's one of the things we're trying to aim at in this book, trying to make it accessible, readable, but where you actually enjoy mm. reading it
2: well you you sort of um you you opened up some space for one of the questions that I wanted to ask uh, and that that would pertain to some of Wright's more controversial conclusions within the field you know one would be of course his notion of an ongoing exile, another one would be his interpretation of the righteousness of God, which obviously is connected to his distinctive take on Romans and you might have a slightly different view um, as he sees it as the covenant faithfulness of God, but on the other hand, you have you know published um, you have published academic work which would come to uh, it, different conclusions, maybe complementary. I don't know. I'll let you answer that question. But um, in in when that happened, right? As you as you were both, you know, heavy hitting scholars, and you had different views. Um, was it always the case that Wright just got the o- opportunity to rewrite what you'd done? Because, um, well, this is, you know, uh, to to a degree, uh, an opportunity to condense his work mainly for a more popular audience. Or uh, did you get to kick back and uh, and uh, f- fight fight for your own uh, distinctive views in some particular places.
3: Oh, yeah, I mean, there wasn't too much kickback. I think Tom and I are pretty much on the same page about 99% of the time. Uh, I I I didn't kind of uh, push back against Tom violently, but there were a few places where I I, I think I played some same themes in a slightly different key. So, let's take the righteousness of God, you know, in Greek, the Uh Tom has promoted the view that it refers to the covenant faithfulness of God, which I would affirm is definitely one aspect of God's righteousness. And, I, and you get that from me from reading Daniel chapter 9, parts of Isaiah, and uh, the way in the history of interpretation from Ambrosiasta all the way through to Erasmus and Karl Barth, it's been interpreted as the faithfulness of, of God. But what I also want to add to that is it's not just a covenant faithfulness, it's also God's attempt to bring justice to creation. You know, and if you read something like Psalm ninety-eight, I mean, Psalm ninety-eight is a wonderful psalm, but it's where you get both of these themes together. You know, God's faithfulness to the covenant people, but also His His justice that will suffuse and rectify all of creation. So sometimes I've taken uh, some of Tom's very famous themes and and motifs, and and I've tried to maybe expand them or or put them in a slightly different angle, which is uh, certainly convincing to me, and I hope it's convincing to others too. And and to be honest, I'm, I'm... Quite confident that uh, that that Tom's on the same the
2: same line there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're certainly moving in the same direction. Although you, you might have a little more specificity than, um, you know, as obviously some of the rub as as this righteousness of God topic has gotten kicked around would have to do whether or not it's a status that we. We actually have, or whether it just refers to God's own covenant faithfulness and isn't something that um, that we participate in. Um, so it'll be interesting to see where you come down, and I'll be trying to, I suppose, sift through that and, and see how much I can find of right and how much I can find of bird there. Uh yeah. Well, no, no, it's it's very funny. It's, it's a bit like where
3: does uh, where does right end and where does bird begin? It's like trying to find where, where where where's the blue and the red and the color purple? You know, where does the blue end and the red begin? So yeah have fun with that have fun with that. Well I'll tell you one thing is all the jokes are definitely mine. <laughs> I'll tell you that much.
0: <laughs> can you tell us a joke? Actually, what, I'll what, share, I'll, can you share I'll, a joke?
3: I'll I'll, sh- I'll I'll share you um I'll share you one joke that this is actually not from the textbook this is from the workbook. This is so there's a workbook like for students as they go through it's kind of like you know basically uh, have they comprehended and understood every um, chapter. But I, I remember one of the jokes. One of the jokes is I give the students um, uh, questions and it's like, what, what are the following? Maybe you guys will know will, will know this. What is the ECM, the NA28 and the UBS5? Are they A. Lectionaries? Are they B. Critical editions of the New Testament? Or C. Uh, discount codes for Christian dating websites? <laughs>
2: Oh, oh! oh it's, they're definitely um, codes for for Christian dating websites. Um, the UBS five, you know, is um, it, there's no doubt that there's no way that's a critical Christian test.
3: mingle. Christian mingle UBS five. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so that's 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 one joke. that That's one joke that makes some, it into that's the some word. gentle
0: humor,
2: Mike. All right. So <laughs> yeah. So Nestle all in twenty seven, twenty eight. You know, um, you got all kinds of different code options there. You can yeah. um, You can yeah, throw well, in there.
3: And for your listeners, I need to know those are actually critical editions of the Greek New Testament.
0: It's important for you to know in that case, Mike Bird knows you're... that. Could that he's not on Christian Mingle? Is that what we're? That what we're saying? <laughs>
2: uh,
3: uh, yeah, no, yeah. No. No. I. Uh, no. I've, I've, yeah. I've never. I've had no need to go on that. But I. I, I but I, uh, I. 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 Rend, I render no judgment on those who. are. I render no judgment on those who are.
2: Well, so, Mike, there are some um, some classic sort of heated controversies, you know, that any kind of New Testament introduction is going to need to navigate. Um, And so uh, I was wondering if you would give us a little teaser or preview about where you guys came down on the question, for instance, of Q. Uh, What what do you have to say about Q uh, in in your book?
3: Oh, we we come down fairly agnostic on Q, uh, non committal We kind of outline the synoptic problem, uh, and which interesting enough, what we do in this book is we we do a like a summary or an intro to the four gospels, and then after we've looked at them, then we look at all the synoptic questions. Um, the, the rationale behind that is you've really got to wrestle with each book on its own terms, look at it itself before you can start talking about the literary relationships between the various books, which, which I, I, think, I think is a much wiser move. Uh, we come down and we, we just give the normal survey of all the options on the synoptic problem and, you know, and where does John's Gospel come from. Uh, I tend to think uh, Tom is a little bit more of a Q skeptic. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the two-source theory is a bit too simplistic myself uh, in terms of like Luke and Matthew just had Mark and Q. I definitely think they've, they both know Mark. I strongly believe in Mark and Priority. I'm fairly confident that Luke at some point has gained access to Matthew, but I think it's a fairly latent, almost last-minute access. At the same time, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not sure that Mark was the only source common to Luke and Matthew, and I think they may have had access to uh, other materials uh, as well now, whether you want to call that Q or a kind of like little Q lights or something like that, I just think the it's going to be far more complex than simply uh, Matthew used Mark and Luke used Matthew and uh, Mark, or Matthew or Matthew and Luke both used Mark and Q. I think it's going to be a little bit more complex than that, and that kind of comes out in in, in the section on the synoptic gospels.
2: Gotcha. Well. Um... Yeah, I probably should let you off the hook on Q questions. Two two quick ones. These are speed round ones, so you, you don't even get to defend yourself. So uh, they're not. This isn't your real speed round. We'll do one later. But so, how about uh, Papia's mention of Matthew's legia? Is that a reference to to Q material? Uh, no. No. Oh. ooh, Interesting. Uh, Q is Q a written source or oral? Yes. <laughs>
3: Well, I, I, okay. I, think, I, think, I think what we call Q could be a number of, sm, uh, of small – I mean, there could be some notebook of sayings, um, which is common in the ancient world to have, like, notebooks of sayings. So there could be a notebook of sayings. But, but also what we call Q – or better, yeah, let's call it the double tradition – might also be some um, oral material or some other source material. I just, think, I just don't think the double tradition is a single entity. Mm.
2: Gotcha. All right, Aaron, you got any uh, burning sort of heated dispute questions you want to toss at him?
0: Well, yeah, I guess I want to, if you ask a question about the Gospels, I guess I kind of want to ask questions about Paul. Where did you come down on Paul's first letter?
3: Paul's first letter is Galatians. Yes. Yes. I love you guys. <laughs> okay. Amen.
0: So following up on that then, what? how do you explain the relationship between Acts 15 and Galatians 2?
3: I have to tell you, Aaron, this is the one part of uh, the of our Paul stuff where Tom and I disagreed on. Oh, uh, great. Mm. Yes,
2: we hit on it.
3: So you've hit on it. You've okay. hit on it. Um, I tend to lean towards the view that uh, Galatians 2 equals Acts 15. Tom leads to, leans towards the view that Galatians 2 equals Acts 11, the famine relief visit.
2: So I'm, I can, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm firmly on, on Tom's side here I, I hate to say it But anyway, go ahead I'll, I'll let you continue
3: Well, all I can say is If you, if you uh, doubt the Galatians 2 equals Acts 15 My advice, go read at Craig Keener's Acts Commentary Where I think he presents the best recent case For making um, Galatians 2 the same as the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 And, I mean, the problem is this this debate used to be so bifurcated between the North Galatia theory and, you know, and even those who are, you know, ostensibly meant to be liberal. So it was meant to be, you know, if you believed in the North Galatia theory and if you were from a mainline college or seminary, you believed this view and... If you were evangelical and had read FF Bruce, you believed this view. Uh, I I, I think that's gone. I I think the South Galatia theory is in the ascendancy, simply what we know of the area and the way the language. I mean, Galatia could be used to describe the southern area. And in terms of, you know, Greek being used there. So I I think it's definitely, I think Tom and I, we both agree it's definitely South Galatia. Uh, But... It, there is a little bit more argy bargy here between you know which event it is referring to in Paul's chronology. Uh, I think I think in the end we we, we do go with um, Tom's view, which you know which is a view I, I respect, and up until very recently I would have, I would have held that view. Uh, I'm a little bit more circumspect on it, but I think it still it still makes sense in, in the story that gets told of Paul.
0: Hmm. And I think I think as much I work in Galatians a bit, and I think. What always strikes me about this conversation is that we're trying to um, date and place Galatians based on Acts. We're trying to date and place Galatians based on Paul's chronology in Acts. And it actually doesn't get at the question of who are these Galatians that Paul is writing to very well. So um, one of the things that I hope that all of us can do, regardless of how we come uh, down on this question, is to ask more incisive and insightful questions about who the Galatians actually are. Uh, That Paul is writing to, rather than settling for these are you know generic Gentiles, which doesn't tell us anything about them other than that they're not Jewish.
2: Yeah, I, I I definitely, I definitely think that the Galatians are actually people Paul visited, and we know which ones they are in Acts. Um, Anyway. yeah so uh, how about we how about we jump to another kind of um, uh, this one 's not as big of a hot button question but it's certainly one that looms large I think in contemporary pauline theology would be um, at least some people are wanting to dichotomize around apocalyptic versus covenantal concerns um, uh, how did you how did you handle um, that tension or that um, yeah, the, I, I, would, I think it's fair to say there is tension around that topic right now, as you have some that are very firmly in an apoc- apocalyptic school and would really want to minimize covenantal concerns and those who really want to make it all about the covenant.
3: Yeah. Well, if I had to divide Pauline scholarship at the moment, I divide into three main categories. You've got the like the old the old new perspective crew, which is Tom Wright, Jimmy Dunn and and friends, uh, you know, Terence Donaldson as well. Then you've got the apocalyptic Paul people, which is like Joel Martin. I think you know Doug Campbell, but he's a bit more eclectic. Uh, Beverly Gaventa, and then you've got the Paul within Judaism school, which is people like Mark Nanos, Paula Fredrickson, Pamela Eisenbaum, uh, and the like. Uh, interesting enough, in this book, I kind of try to explain the apocalyptic Paul people and the Paul within Judaism Paul people by using the acronym Tulip, because you know, being a good Calvinist, I I have to explain all theological positions using a five-point acronym that begins with tulip. Uh, so we we do get into this a bit. Now I can affirm where, but where certainly the apocalyptic poor people, I think I think they are right. I think they are right that Paul's gospel is definitely uh, apocalyptic in the sense that it's got an apocalyptic eschatology and apocalyptic worldview, and it kind of creates apocalyptic uh, communities. I would also I mean you get that from like reading Galatians one four, you know, you know Christ comes to save us from the from the evil age and you've only got to look at one Corinthians fifteen and Romans eight to see the apocalyptic texture going on. What I struggle with with the apocalyptic uh, Paul people uh, is you end up with what I would regard as a very brutal Bartian reading of the New Testament, where, the, there is no promise and fulfilment. There's not really any great anticipation uh, for the gospel, and you, and uh, the the entire Israelite religion uh, just becomes that. It becomes you know basically uh, the example of the of the religious man coram Deo before God, and it's simply part of the debris of a dead and dying chaos. So everything is brand new, it's invasive, it's disruptive, but it's this sort of, you know, almost a a denunciation of everything that preceded it. So there's a very strong lack of any kind of continuity between um, the Old Testament or the Israelite religion way of life and Paul's gospel. Uh, So I I think, as with most movements, I think the apocalyptic Paul is more correct in what it affirms the gracious nature of the Christ event, the, the interruption of uh, salvation, the, the, the defeat of the forces of evil in this present evil age. But what's, what's really lacking is an understanding of promise and fulfillment and the ongoing uh, covenantal linearity uh, that we have in the biblical story.
2: Yeah, we should have brought in Chris Tilling for sure, uh, as uh, you know, uh, as uh, he he tends to be a little more Bardian, uh than uh, than I would be, for instance. Uh, well, Matt doesn't a,
0: like Carl Bart.
3: We've already. I don't,
2: I don't like Carl <laughs> Bart. Um, I'm I'm not ashamed to say.
0: Kind of give you
3: my best Carl Bart. You'll, Matt, you'll like this. This will help you keep you. This will help you keep your disgust fresh. Okay. Oh, great. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, in Bart's Romans commentary, when he discusses the weak in faith. He gives the contemporary examples of the week in faith of his own day, being Baptists, vegetarians, and open-air campaigners. <laughs> I'm not joking. That's his. That's his modern definition of the week in faith, is uh, Baptists, vegetarians, and open-air campaigners. Um, I was going to say. I mean, any, any, if any of you guys know Joey Dodson, who I, who is a vegan biblical scholar uh, now in now in Denver. Yeah, uh, it took you, my old job. Yeah, exactly. Good old good old Joey. Uh although no one could replace you, Aaron. No one could replace you. You are irreplaceable.
0: Okay. Um, well, I appreciate you saying that, but I think he's doing a great job.
3: Yeah, uh, Joey's But awesome. basically Bart's worst case scenario is imagine Joey Dodson standing on a sidewalk saying you need Jesus. Um with with a big sign. That's uh, that's Bart's I don't Bart's feel definition. like that's
0: a a real big stretch actually. <laughs> Yeah, I I know. See Joey well, doing I mean,
3: that. well, jo- Joey's Baptist. He's he's vegan, and you stick him on a sidewalk with a sign saying John three six or something, and that's what Bart was worried about.
0: Ah, uh, well, I think he's evangelizing uh, through hiking now. So, um, oh,
3: good. Well, 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 Colorado's the
0: place to do that.
2: Yeah. That's right. I knew yeah. I knew there was a reason why I was friends with Joey. That's it, right there. Um, I could do that. I could do all those things. Yeah, my 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 disgust for Carl Bart has been affirmed. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Okay, well, I still really like Karl Bart, and I find his Romans commentary really interesting, but... Um, yeah.
2: Well, interesting is a very plastic word, Aaron.
0: <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, I think he's a good conversation partner, even where you disagree with him. He's thought provoking, not mind numbingly boring, Matt.
2: <laughs> well, um, I, I will be truthful and say that I do I do appreciate those who have summarized Bart much more than I do Bart himself. Um, I, I he, there are, there are some things that are provoking there, but I find him horribly tedious to read.
3: Yeah, no, can, can I say this? If you, my advice is start with Barth's book, Evangelical Theology, and then maybe, and then go from there. Go in softly. Uh, then maybe get into his uh, Göttingen Dogmatics. That is a much um, easier way than say jumping into Church Dogmatics. I
2: I jumped right into Church Dogmatics when I tried him, and uh, I read some of it, and I've read some of it. But I, you know, I, I for for my stuff, my work I did on Trinitarian theology, I needed to read some of it, so I slogged through. But I didn't enjoy it, honestly.
3: Uh, what, one thing I tell my sorry take a bit of a sidebar on Bart, but one thing I tell my students is, you've got to remember, Barth was not an evangelical, uh, but he has got some very good resources for how evangelicals can do theology, particularly the way he constructs uh, Trinitarian theology and has a, a Christocentric focus. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't call myself a Barthian theologian by any stretch, uh, but there's some good stuff in there.
2: Yeah. Well we all have to yeah. I can mediate between the two of you. Uh we have to be tremendously thankful for, you know, his his fronting of divine revelation and uh, applaud and cheer for uh, all the good he did. Um as uh, there's doubtless a lot. So um I, I even in my even in my cynicism, um I can I can applaud him.
0: You can applaud him, you just don't have to read him.
2: Yeah, no, exactly right. It's you've, it's, it's the you've, best of
0: both worlds really.
2: Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head there. Um well, uh, should we do a speed round with Mike? Yeah, what do you yeah, think, Aaron? I,
0: I, I'll do a first looking, speed round. I'm looking, I'm
3: looking forward to this. I've been, I've been practicing. Okay. Okay. Oh,
0: good, good. Because I wrote, I wrote special uh, Mike Bird questions for my speed round, so I'm I'm looking forward to these. Um, okay, Mike. The rules are, you know, the rules. You answer. You don't have to give any explanation. You just answer the question. Uh, keep it short, simple, etc. So, Mike, the first question: What, in your opinion? is the scariest animal in Australia.
2: Great white shark.
0: Does it count well, if it's not yeah, in they're Australia? All, they're off the
2: coast. I don't know that that's, that's, not, that's not fair.
0: <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Okay, land well, okay, animal. I'll give you
3: a, okay, land animal. Uh, yeah, taipan. A what? Taipan.
0: What, what is a, that?
3: It's a snake.
0: It's a snake.
3: If it bites you, you've got about five minutes of life left.
0: Where do, and where do they live?
3: Uh, ma- mainly in northern Australia. Yeah, one of those bites you. It's pretty much um, um, you got about five minutes to get you. Unless unless it bites you like literally in a hospital, it, you're pretty much going to be dead in between five and fifteen minutes.
0: Yeah, that sounds that sounds awful. So not the drop bear.
3: No, no, uh, no. The uh, no, not them. Although I did have some American students with me recently, and I did warn them about the Chuzwuzzes. Um <laughs> And uh, which I described as drop bears. I I said, watch out for the chuzzwazzes. And the other thing thing we have, we have like a tin roof on the house we're living in. And uh, we have these like huge possums, like half possum, half gorilla, kind of who like run. Now, seriously, it sounds like a gorilla running across your roof. You think, what the heck is that? The first time it happens, it's terrifying. So I said, don't worry, if you hear this big thumping on the roof, it's not an intruder. It's not kind of a gorilla. It's just these really big buffed possums who have gone into some old steroids or something, and they're just running around on the
2: roof. Well, this is, th- that's actually a great segue to one of my speed round questions was, have you ever had to deal with an unwanted animal in your house? And what did you do? Have one of these possums ever gotten in? Uh, no, no, probably the,
3: the best animal we ever had in the house was not in Australia. It was in Scotland. When we lived in the far north of Scotland, a bat got into the house. Oh, oh this is was flying around. Nightmare. And I have, uh, my dear wife Naomi is a, I mean, she's a brave soccer mom kind of thing. You know, you don't, you, don't, you don't mess with the mama bear. But this poor woman was kind of crawled up in a corner, absolutely petrified, while this bat is flying around the room and above her head type of thing. It, it kind of had flown down the chimney and uh, had come into the house. And um, yeah, it was, just, it was just a weird thing and trying to get the bat out. So yeah, that that was probably the weirdest animal I think we've ever had in the house.
1: Oh, I feel
0: like they're on me. We have a thing. Matt and I both hate bats. Like that's our that's our phobia, of bats. We've discussed this on on script before that yeah, both of us, yeah, have a have a phobia of bats. And now, so, so Batman's
3: like your trigger or something. You're like oh, Batman,
0: probably oh. no. You know, honestly, it's that um, they were in my grandmother's house growing up. So. I have distinct memories of like holidays uh, being, yes, punctuated by bats in the house and relatives running from bats and, uh, oh wow, yeah, drunk sounds uncles like Eric... trying to hit bats with uh, tennis rackets and whatnot.
3: Okay, well,
0: <laughs> that sounds, That's
3: a, do do you have any YouTube of this? This sounds
0: <laughs> sounds interesting. Uh, no, um, this was when I was like growing up, so before YouTube.
2: I had a very specific moment that triggered me that I think I've already shared with on script listeners, and I don't want to relive it right now. All <laughs> right, Mike, here's another question for you then. Another question. Uh, what's the worst paid job that you've ever had to do? Uh, I worked in a video store.
0: What sport do you think is grossly underappreciated? Rugby. Yes. Although I'm sad for Australia and New Zealand.
2: I'm not sad for New Zealand. All right. All right, Mike. Uh, what's something that makes you nervous? When someone says, "I need you
3: to come and see me," that's always ominous. Now, it's, it's usually for like someone who just needs something from me, but it kind of—it kind of it sounds a bit like you know, you need to get your affairs in order, type of a. Uh, when someone says you've got to come, what's, what's the other thing that other thing that makes me nervous is uh, turbulence. Turbulence, bad turbulence, makes me nervous as well. I've been through some bad turbulence, and I usually just grab the hand of whatever old lady I'm sitting next to.
0: Okay, now Mike, I'm I'm right in thinking that you don't like coffee and you don't like beer. Is that right?
3: No, I don't mind beer. I don't mind a bit of beer, but my my feelings of coffee are very similar to how Nancy Pelosi feels about Donald Trump. I mean Okay, so I,
0: so if you had to pick a coffee drink to drink, what what coffee drink would you drink? That would be
3: a half decaf macchiato with extra sprinkles and a shot of caramel.
2: <laughs> mhm. Mhm. Yep. You've just hide yeah. it, yeah. Just no, hide they, the yeah, coffee.
3: Well, here's, here's the funny thing. When people say, "Can I get you a coffee?" I say, "Sure." Can I have a half decaf macchiato, extra sprinkles, and a shot of caramel? And they go, "I don't think I can make that." I go, "Fine, I'll have tea then." So I try, try, try to I try to be a bit of a bit of a you know a precious prima donna over it. Um, the the other thing the, I mean the other thing I say is you know look I, I'd rather I'd rather shave with a rusty cheese grater than have a cup of coffee i mean ew.
0: oh <laughs> but you like wine better i remember that from last I, time
3: yeah i like my red wine um i don't mind a little bit of beer um then I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a coke zero fan i have my i have my morning coke zero um which kind of helps me get through you yeah, see you see your face Aaron. You, you make it think like i'm the crazy one you're the one who drinks coffee <laughs> So far as I'm concerned, you're the crazy one. You're the one who's cultivated a bean addiction.
0: <laughs> That's true. That's true. And you know what? My husband is the one who enables me because he's so he's so particular about his coffee that we have a an espresso machine in our house that I'm not allowed to touch, not because he's that particular, but because he says that it will literally blow up if I do it wrong. So, like, it's like a pressure cooker and it'll explode or something. I'm sure coffee snobs are just like, I, but anyway... Yes, well, you're right. Well,
3: Melbourne, Melbourne is one of the coffee capitals of the world. I mean, like you know, Starbucks can barely get a foothold here because the coffee is is so good. I'm told. Uh, but and the the one regret, my wife, my wife is lovely and she loves me uh, preciously. But she has two things she wishes she could change about me, or well, three things actually. One, she wishes I was a foot taller. Three, she wishes I was musical. So second, she wishes I was musical. And thirdly, she wishes I would actually appreciate coffee. Because in 20 years of marriage, I have never, ever made her a coffee. I, I've made her endless, I've made her endless meals and cups of tea, but I've never made you, her a coffee.
2: You, you might need to just sacrifice there since you're not going to grow a foot taller and you're probably not going to learn how to sing. You should just <laughs> sacrifice and make her a coffee. You
0: got to learn, got to learn how, learn how to, that skill. Yeah. Okay. Okay. One more, one more Mike bird question specific to Mike bird. What skill from your paratrooper days do you consistently use as a New Testament scholar?
3: Ah, oh, that's, well, not so much from being a power troop, but from military intelligence, uh, was um, how to do a good PowerPoint presentation. Well, two things i learned in the military, how to kill people, and how to use PowerPoint, and and you can combine them for how to kill people with PowerPoint. <laughs>
2: well, that's great. Sounds that sounds
0: dangerous. I'm never coming to one of your papers uh oh, they 're pretty they're pretty that's it's more like stand up comedy
3: it 's more like dave chappelle kind of a thing it's, it's it's more like that
2: um how about uh how about then we we, we kind of circle back to the book as uh as we 're having so much fun uh talking about other things um uh why don 't we uh, end with a couple questions, I know you're a little bit short on time. Um, one is that I, I i couldn't read the book yet, unfortunately, the New Testament in its world, but I, I was able to look at the table of contents and whatnot and uh, I did see that you have a, a kind of a, a developmental structure you you move from Jesus historical Jesus to Paul to the Gospels to the so called catholic letters it's a traditional chronological framework. Were there important theological reasons that sort of drove that decision too? Is there something you're trying to do in terms of um, um, something theological for students.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, some people did say, "How come you did it in this order? Why didn't you take a canonical approach?" You know, uh, begin with you know, the Gospel of Matthew and then finish up with Revelation in canonical order. Uh, but one thing we're trying to do is to tell the story of the early church. So you begin with you know a bit of you know background you know the jewish people amongst you know the various empires of the world particularly the roman empire then you get to the historical jesus the resurrection uh, then you get into the early church, which, which of course, our earliest uh, Christian author is the Apostle Paul, who precedes uh, the Gospels. Most scholars agree. Then you get into the Gospel, because then you see the crystallization of the, of the Jesus tradition, uh, largely after the time of Paul. Then, around about the same time, you've got you know most of the Catholic letters going on as well. So it, it was the attempt to do it historically, because we're trying to tell the historical story of the emergence of Christianity in the Greco-Roman world. And while for some people that will cause a maybe a slight cerebral meltdown because we didn't do it in the canonical order, there is a certain method to the madness because I think you get a better grasp of the growth, the debates, the issues and the characteristics of the first Christians when you tell the story that way.
1: Mm.
2: Mm, no, that's, that's great. Um, yeah. I don't know, Aaron, do you have a final question for Mike? I, I had one more on my list, but I'll let you hop yeah, in yeah. there if you got one.
0: I do have a final question, but it's kind of a final, final question. So if you have a, um, you know, a penultimate
2: question. Okay. Well, this could be penultimate and it could be quick, but uh, do you have a current book project you're working on? You want to tell us anything about?
3: Uh, yeah, I've got a few things coming uh, out in good time. Uh, myself and Scott Harrower are doing a book ...on the Apostolic Fathers, the Cambridge Companion to the Apostolic Fathers... ...that we're very excited about. That's now in its last phases of uh, production. We'll hopefully go to the publisher in about a month or so, when when that's all done. My good friend and I, Nijay Gupta, we have just finished a Philippians commentary... ...in the new Cambridge uh, Bible Commentary series... And when I'm not doing a few other smaller things, a few essays here and there, I'm gradually working on a New Testament
0: theology for IVP
3: called A Theology of the New Covenant.
2: Well, that's great. Those are some good teasers. Looking forward to it.
0: All right. Well, so here's my my final question or our final question. Uh, Mike, you've talked a lot about... Um, making the New Testament seem relevant, um, showing that the New Testament has implications for the Christian faith, etc., which I know is an important issue to you. But if you had to summarize um, one thing that we should take from the new introduction about, you know, why we should care about historical background for um, for our faith, why the average person in the pew should care about uh, first century history, or indeed. Um, you know, spanning those couple centuries, what what would you say? Why should why should people care about this?
3: Okay, I, th- I think the reason for that is it stops you engaging in brutal allegory of the text. If you don't know uh, background, you'll end up doing some kind of uh, really uh, ext- extemporaneous allegory. And let me give you a good example of that. Okay, if you don't know what a Pharisee is, if you think the Pharisee is nothing more than a paragon of religious hypocrisy and legalism that the danger is you're going to you're going to um you're going to have a distorted view against what jesus was confronting because the pharisees were not just paragons of religious hypocrisy they were a competing jewish renewal movement with their own view of the restoration of israel and similarly that's what uh what paul came out of Uh, As well, which was kind of, um, I mean, the Pharisees, particularly the zealous wing of the Pharisees, were kind of like the Judean version of jihadism, who believed holy violence was necessary to protect. Israel's worship, its sanctity, and its purity, uh, which is a very different from just seeing them as these you know, timeless examples of religious hypocrisy. And I remember that I heard a story from a Bible translator when they were tra- translating the Bible for some particular people group in Africa. They decided to translate the word Pharisee as religious teacher. So that, that's what they use. They just they just you know people don't know what a Pharisee is, I just change it to religious teacher. The problem is they found after um, a few months a number of the believers in the village then turned on their leaders because well Jesus says all religious teachers are bad. You are religious teachers, therefore we're gonna be against you. So you, you you can see how allegorizing something like a Pharisee had very bad uh had very very bad results. The other thing I would say, historical background is important because it's like the difference between um, seeing things in 2D and 3D. It's the difference between black and white and colour. When you know a bit of historical background, it adds more dimension, more depth, and more colour to what's going on. Now I'm aware that some people uh, worry that if you make New Testament background the key to New Testament studies, it becomes like a secret knowledge that only an elite few know. But the fact of the matter is, uh, unless you have some knowledge of the ancient world, unless so, unless someone along the line has learned Greek and has translated into English for you, without some kind of historical knowledge, none of us would have a Bible today. And the fact that we have so many study Bibles with notes shows that we really do need help. On background, like you know, what is the pool of Siloam? You know, what's the difference between Pisidian Antioch and Syrian Antioch? So knowing this stuff is really necessary. It stops us making big mistakes. It stops us engaging in crass allegorism, and it simply draws us uh, more more cohesively, more uh, more realistically into the ancient world where the New Testament is set.
2: It's almost as if you're saying, we're going to allegorize. We might as well do it the right way. <laughs> Um, at least there, there's there, there's something along those lines to what you're saying. Well, we appreciate the conversation so much, Mike. Um, it's, it's been wonderful, and we're looking forward to uh, the book. I'm certainly looking forward to how I'll be able to employ it, I hope, with some of my students uh, down the road as I teach uh, exploring the New Testament. I'm sure Aaron teaches New Testament courses and uh, a great many of uh, folks like us who who are in the New Testament classroom will will certainly benefit from, uh, from Tom Wright's work, from your work here, and, and we're grateful that you've put this together. Thanks, Mike.
3: Okay, thank you very much for having me, Matt and Aaron. It's been a pleasure.
2: This is Matthew Bates and Aaron Heim for OnScript. Today's guest has been Michael Bird. We've been discussing the new book by N.T. Wright and Mike, The New Testament in Its World, published by Zondervan in 2019. Uh, You'll, of course, have a link to the book on our website, onscript.study. Farewell for now.